The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon. This is Library Users of America program, and we are having our second event of the day. We just had a wonderful visit with Jason Broughton, the director of NLS, but now we're on to talk about things that are in your library you might not be aware of. Paul uh, Edwards is in the room with me. He is the Lua vice president. I am the president. And Brian is our immediate past president who will be chairing this uh, section of the program. Brian, I will be quiet and only do anything that you ask me to do. Today, we're going to be talking about libraries. And much of the time when we're talking libraries, in Library Users of America, we're referring primarily to NLS, the National Library Service. But a number of us have grown and have spread out to additional libraries, things like uh, Bookshare, for example, uh, and some mainstream online libraries uh, and library services as well. So what we wanted to talk to you about today is this thing that if you are a taxpayer, you're paying for in one form or another called the public library. And we wanted to try to encourage people who are library people to not just assume that the library is this old fashioned uh, thing that uh, looks not much different than the days of little house on the prairie. The library is a dynamic place that is changing constantly. Some of the changes are as a result of the same thing as forcing changes elsewhere or accelerating changes elsewhere, uh, including the pandemic. But many of these things existed prior to that point. They are primarily driven by two things. One is available funding. And two is community request. So we're going to be talking about these things beyond the norm. But I guess the best way to start that is to describe what we mean in the norm. Libraries come in lots of flavors. First off, there is certainly the public library. You probably have one in your town or if you're uh, way out in farm country, you may be part of a consortium of several towns with a public library. And conventionally, these libraries consist of books available for loan and periodicals available for loan. Some of these libraries have other services they provide beyond loaning books and giving access to periodicals. Uh, They might be something like a community room where individuals can Uh, sign up to use a room at a particular time for a club meeting, say maybe an ACB chapter meeting, or they may be used to provide some form of educational opportunity. A quilting club who wants to help people learn how to quilt, uh, or perhaps it's a club that's working on writing poetry, you know, any variety of types of subjects these community rooms can be put to. 
Sometimes libraries have extensive outdoor facilities. Here in Watertown, there's a park associated with our library, and the library holds events out there from time to time. Uh, little fairs for the kids in the neighborhood to uh, concerts by local bands and that kind of thing. So the the space is part of what a library brings. And if you're used to NLS, you're used to a library without space. Even our regional libraries, which may have some space for these kinds of things, um, it's not all that easy for us to get to the state library or, or the one place within our entire state that is our library. They're not community-based directly. So here we have this library sitting there. And you say to yourself, well, I get my books electronically. I download them from Bard or, or from Bookshare or um, maybe I'm into uh, books from Amazon or whatever. So I download them onto a device that I have in my hand so I don't have to go anywhere to get those. But there are other things at the library. You can, in many libraries, check out music. And I, I'm not talking necessarily about uh, musical scores, though many of them do have pretty significant collections in that regard. You can also check out DVDs and CDs with either music or movies on them. Now, most of the time, and since I'm an audio description addict, most of the time, they're not likely to have the audio description tag on them or, or a track on them. But if you don't ask, you don't get. So I would suggest that you check out with your library. Uh, go on down there and ask, your, ask them, do your audio or do your movie DVDs include the audio description track when available? And they're likely to be interested in helping you investigate the availability. And they may change vendors from which they buy these for their collection to uh, a vendor that does provide an audio described version. I know a number of libraries uh, have these things donated to them or they buy them from a wholesale place. Um, if anybody's ever used Redbox, for example, Redbox DVDs never have audio description on them. They're partially inexpensive way of accessing such things because they're so simplified. They're stripped of many things other than the main video content. But there's movies, there's music, and that's not that unusual a thing. What there can be that's unusual is in a variety of other ways. When Judy and I first talked about this topic, I had mentioned that there are libraries out there where you can purchase bakeware. Now, I love to bake. I've got my own special baking kitchen in my home. And I have a collection of a half a dozen bunt cake pans of different styles. But maybe you don't. But maybe your library loans them out to you. Again, you don't ask, 
you won't know. It's not like they're sending out an announcement to the entire community that we have this, unless you're reading their newsletter or regular borrower from the library. You may never be aware of that kind of thing. And it might be, like I say, a bunch of pan, but it just as easily could be spring form pans or special kinds of muffin pans, or maybe you're going to make a wedding cake, but you don't own all those different sizes of circular cake pans. Here's a way to go beyond that. Some libraries are starting. You said you could buy them from your library. You meant borrow. I meant borrow. Pardon me, borrow. Thank you. Borrow from your library. Some of them are also looking at some newfangled technologies. You may have heard of something called sous vide. This is where you take something you want to cook and you put it into a Ziploc bag or if you're lucky enough to have one of those uh, systems where it sucks the air out and then seals the bag. And then you pop that into a pot of boiling water or rather water, and you have this little device you clip onto the edge of your pot that causes the water to constantly circulate at a very specific temperature. Uh, and again, maybe, you, maybe you're interested in such a thing. You'd like to try it before you buy one. Well, your library may be one of the places you can borrow such a device. So certainly there are loaning libraries of cooking equipment of one kind or another. There are other libraries that loan you out recreational equipment. Maybe you, for example, uh, want to go camping with your young child, but you don't have all the equipment to do that. Find out if your library loans out camping equipment. When I did my research for the article in the Lua Ledger, I was amazed that there were at least a dozen libraries around the country in my research, at least. I'm sure there's more than that, um, that do offer recreational equipment. Maybe in your neck of the woods, um, you'd like to try snowshoeing. That's recreational equipment. There are libraries who loan that out. Now, there are also libraries that loan out things as straightforward as bicycles. Um, you go up into Alaska and you'd be surprised what people can borrow from Alaskan libraries. So there's the recreational side of things. And that recreational can be something like volleyball nets, um, croquet sets, these kinds of things that you may use so seldom, but you need it this one time. Ask your library. There are other things that you need only rarely that can also be available at your library. Parents who have children uh, who they have to costume up every year for Halloween, you might ask your library, does this library loan Halloween costumes? I was amazed also at how many libraries do that. Anybody who's had to purchase a prom dress knows how (laughs) astounding the costs for such things can be. Well, a number of libraries have developed a system by which they do loan out prom dresses. Sometimes what a library does is loan out things, but sometimes what a library 
does is provide opportunity for education. One of the things that I find fascinating that's happening to our libraries is the use of what they call maker spaces. You may have heard of something called a 3D printer. This is a device that you um, put some material in. It might be uh, a spool of fiber, uh, one of these fancy new plastics. Or it might be you put in a cube of something. And in either case, you send it a file. And that file either layers that cord material as it melts it until it becomes a three-dimensional object, or it melts away material from an object until what's left behind is a three-dimensional object. I have in my right palm here a pair of dice that are Braille dice that I got from a 3D printer when ACB's leadership group had an opportunity to visit a lab that made three-dimensional cars by way of this printing process. And they gave me this pair of dice as a souvenir. So 3D is amazing. What this means for you is a couple of things. One is many times these libraries will generate a collection of 3D objects they've printed. It might be shapes of... uh, Buildings, famous buildings around the world, the Eiffel Tower, the, uh, uh, what would be another good one, the Taj Mahal, these kinds of things. Or it may be objects that are in the news. What does the latest rocket ship look like? Um, or maybe there's some discovery that's going, that has happened recently. For example, the uh, baby mammoth they found in an excavation up in Canada this last week. So they can create these 3D objects from catalogs that are available. Or they also teach people how to take some of the software that works on these printers to create your own object. Uh, My friend Judy Dixon Uh, While cooking at her house one day, I accidentally melted the knobs off her stove. But she couldn't find those knobs um, for sale anywhere. But she found the 3D file for them and had a company make her replacement knobs. Now, that is pretty exciting. And again, it's one of those things that many libraries are doing, both training people how to do those kinds of things and collecting up objects that they've once created. Some libraries, although they use the word loan, are actually giving things away, though they like people to donate to them to keep them viable. One such example would be a seed library. Again, One of those things I learned about on a YouTube video is about the International Seed Vault, where they've collected seeds from all over the world and continuously select seeds. And those seeds libraries 
uh, exist in miniature at many public libraries. You can go in and say, I'm looking to, to try my hand at growing, uh, I don't know, rainbow carrots or something like that. So you can look through their collection and take some away. The request is that at some point down the line, uh, when you're at the store and you're buying seed, buy a few extra packets to donate back to the seed library at your public library. Another thing that I noticed out there is the loaning out of musical instruments. Now, I have on my wall here in my office my two lovely ukuleles. And there are libraries that loan out ukuleles, flutes, uh, guitars, and all of the different kinds of instruments you might find out there. You'll find that some of the more expensive things they loan out, they request that you uh, leave either a deposit or a credit card number in case you abscond with it. But ukuleles are relatively inexpensive, the loan kind anyway. And uh, I would really encourage you, if you ever thought about playing a musical instrument, Check your library to see whether or not they loan them out. Uh, many, many of them do just that. Now, I've been talking mostly about public libraries, but understand that you might ask your regional library as well. What do they do that's not just books and magazines? Some of them loan out story kits where it's a box full of items associated with a particular story so that you, as a blind parent of a sighted child or blind child, can go through this box of things and tell the story and read the story behind uh, these objects. So it can be as simple as what they call a story pillow or as complicated as magic wands and maybe something like a uh, hourglass, things along those lines, objects that go along with the story, story book boxes. Speaking of kids, there are libraries that have toy loaning libraries. Again, you parents out there who know how expensive it can be to keep buying toys as your kids grow older and older, and they don't want that old toy anymore, or it's, it's below their age level, that kind of thing, libraries have begun to accept donated toys to go in their toy library. Uh, this is really an important way to not only reuse toys, but uh, also to keep them out of the waste stream in general. I remember the day when we went to um, a bunch of garage sales and saw people attempting to sell toys. And at the end of the day, the toys were the last thing not sold, not because they weren't loved, but because most of the people who would be okay with used toys just didn't come by that garage sale. So rather than putting them in the dumpster, see about your library and their willingness to do a toy library. Now, that's not going to be those soft toys, not in the days of COVID. They need to be something that can be sanitized between use. 
Um, but there's a lot of toys out there that can, in fact, be sanitized and reused. What I'd like to do is to attempt a poll here today. So, Jeanette, if you're ready, I'm going to ask, uh, are all hands down currently? All hands are currently down. Good. So here's what I'd like you to do. And that is, if you currently have a public library card, raise your hand. In the room, we have four or five people with library cards out of maybe eight or ten people here. Good. Good. And Jeanette's giving me a count for the Zoom folk. Seventeen. And how many do we have on Zoom right now? Fifty-nine participants and four panelists. Great. So, certainly, I'm not having to convince everybody. There's a, a reasonable number of people here, and I suppose it's not dissimilar to uh, the non-blind-slash-low-vision population in terms of percentage. But I have a, a good friend there. His name's Rick Morin, who's always saying this phrase to me, why leave anything on the table? Uh, it costs nothing to get a public library card. The other thing to keep in mind is your public library is not a standalone library. It's, I, I, I know of no occasion where there's a library that's a, quote, public library that isn't part of a consortium of, of some kind. Here it's the Minuteman system. So I'm connected not only to the material available at the library about a half a mile from my home, I'm also available to borrow from any library in my region through interlibrary loan. So just because they don't have one of these specially loaned libraries for non-traditional objects at your library doesn't mean they're not available from one of these other libraries around your area. I'm interested in hearing from you if any of you have borrowed something from a library other than a book or magazine or more traditional item that you'd like to share with us today. So if everybody puts their hand down. Hands are all lowered, Brian. Uh, I would ask anybody, hands. anybody who has borrowed something unusual from a library to raise your hand. Yes, hi. This is Virginia in San Diego. I um, In San Diego, this is sort of related to the question. We have um, what they call an ICANN center. And they have, um, unlike some of the other branches, they have some computers with JAWS. And they also will do um, the Patron Central NLS um, books. They will put them on there for you. And they do have cartridges available that they can loan to you and you send them back. And uh, I think uh, it, it's a really worthwhile. They have a different kinds of disabilities. Yes. Um, and, and also the library was paid for completely with, uh, I guess, donations. So that's interesting, too, about it. That's great. And they have a lot That's of good. activities. Yeah, specialty libraries are pretty amazing. One of the types of libraries, I mean, you, here in Watertown, we have the Museum and Library of Toilets, believe it or not. So 
you would be surprised what kind of specialty places there are out there that loan out things unique to their activity. I'm going to just say, well, I still have the mic. This is Judy. I have gone to the knitting club at my local library and the book club and the summer reading club where summer where they actually gave us dinner at the end of the summer if we participated in the summer reading program. Here, Michael. My local library in Topeka, Kansas, and our local ACB chapter have a very good relationship. Uh, they actually, for a time, and they still are doing some of this, although they have reduced the size of the program because One of the expansion of other programs, uh, they uh, collect common visual aids that people, like with macular degeneration or uh, issues such as that, might need. They uh, uh, collect uh, groups of small hearing assistance devices, and it's possible to check them out and test to see what kind of visual aid is going to work for you. Um, They do have uh, computers fitted with uh, speech and other accommodations, although the problem with those seems to be if nobody is going in and using them, and that's a good argument for using them, uh, they tend to, you'll go in and you'll find like a JAWS that is uh, five uh, iterations behind and so on. So that's not ideal. But one of the nice things about the fact that the library does this as a part of what they do is about every two or three years, somebody from the library shows up at our affiliate office with a box full of equipment, which is no longer on the market, but they think somebody might be able to then use, and we distribute that equipment for them. So there you go. I, I think it's a two-way street. It's absolutely it really a, two-way a, a two-way street. And, and, and I am just absolutely avid that uh, our chapter has met at the local library. One of the other things that our library has, which is really kind of cool, is it has a really good restaurant in it. And that's great because you can go in and browse and do what you want to in the library and have a really decent lunch there. So uh, I I was delighted to see this uh, program available because I think that it's a hugely underused resource. And, Brian, you did a great job. Thank you. Our next person is Tony. One of the books, or not actually a book I borrowed, I I went to my public library in philadelphia the free library not the nls or whatever like that but the main free library this is back in the mid 80s i needed to get a i wanted i was doing a paper a college paper on the early synthesizers that were out back in the early to mid 70s and i actually found a videotape in the free library about that and it helped me to get an a in my music paper Good for you. Good for you. I remember those early synthesizers. I had a Votrex that oh, uh, sounded like go. a drowning Russian. It was really <laughs> horrible. Anyway, thank you, Tony. Thank you. Okay, back into the main room. Yes. Um, Adam has a question. I just wanted to mention that in Kentucky, we had two or three large public libraries in the state, uh, Louisville, Lexington, and one in northern Kentucky right across from Cincinnati. 
that had very good large print collections. And even 50 years ago, there were only about 14 or 1,500 titles in large print uh, that were public library type books. Today, there are you know, many, many of those thousands maybe. And uh, the public libraries do try to share those. And within the last uh, year, uh, our Kentucky Regional Librarian, uh, Barbara Pentagor, has been put in charge of not only the talking book program, but also the large print uh, books that are shared throughout our public library system. Excellent. Excellent. Here in Massachusetts, our sub-regional has the large print collection. Um, but of course, it shares it with the Perkins Library as well. They share patrons. Pam, I, you're not, next. It's been, this has been a long time, but I used to use a public library um, to check out recordings of music. And this is when we had no scanning devices, no cell phones with nifty little apps and what have you. They, the library staff dreaded seeing me go in the door because I was the one that was always looking for recordings of those things that no one knew how to pronounce the names of. <laughs> yeah, I got you there. I remember when I first went to a public library, uh, the, the library had a revolving door in the front, and yeah. I went in through the revolving door uh, just to check out what the library had. And I'm telling you, the front desk person had me turned around and hitting back out that door so fast <laughs> because they said, well, what you need is that library for blind people. And yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> but I got to know the li head of the library and things rapidly changed. As you've heard before, computers with JAWS or Zoom text or uh, scanners. In fact, uh, our library here had one of the original Kurzweil machines, ran $40,000, was the size of a chest freezer. Um, and you could uh, knit a sweater while you were waiting for it to scan the first page. So yeah, they've come a long way since then. But as Michael said, you know, if we don't go in and use these things, then they slide down on a, a level of importance when it comes to the limited resources that libraries are juggling in order to provide services to all of their patrons. All right. So back in the room, anybody there? So take the mic to Steve Mendelson. Brian, one of the, uh, thank you very much for the presentation, by the way. One of the very exciting things that uh, uh, library systems have been doing over the past number of years is digital audio. Can you talk a little bit more about the uh, opportunities and the issues that raises for us uh, in terms, for example, of accessibility, uh, of, of signing up, of browsing the catalog, of getting the books, of returning them, and of what we can do to help our library systems to make that wonderful service more accessible? Sure. So, uh, Steve, I think you're talking about things like uh, – Overdrive and other library systems that libraries buy into to get access to digital content. Exactly. Um, so many libraries out there uh, have decided that rather than having to have all the shelf space uh, and then the continued need to store uh, multiple copies of something that's currently interesting to the public is to pool 
this into these digital download systems. Um, it was about 10 years ago, or maybe a little longer than that, that I was invited to be a speaker at the um, American Library Association annual convention held in Chicago. And my goal was to get somebody to pay for me to come there so that I could go through the exhibit hall, which is those at the ACB convention, imagine every space in that hotel and then triple it. And that was just the exhibit space. And I spent my time going from digital provider to digital provider to talk to them about accessibility. I, I really did feel that that was where the future was going to go for a lot of people. And anybody who owns a Kindle knows I wasn't too far off the mark, was I? So I talked to them. They all said uh, very much like, like the uh, NLS director said earlier, they're going to work on that. But they already have the system. So they didn't build accessibility in from the beginning. So parts of the system don't work from an accessibility point of view. It may be, as Steve mentioned, the sign-up process. It may be the ability to know how long you have that book checked out to you because these systems are such that you download it uh, onto a device, depends on which library, which device, which service, and then you have access to that for a certain number of days. And when that's over, you're blocked because the library has a deal with the provider to have X number of copies. So you still end up losing access to that and put back in the queue to reborrow it later if you haven't finished it. So the software may not let you know how much time you have left. The software may make it difficult for you to move from one title to another if you've checked out more than one book. I don't remember ever checking out just one book, but that might be the, the stumbling block. And then, of course, comes the actual reader itself. The method used for uh, doing continuous reading, for stopping and where you've stopped. Have you, have you stopped where it was spoken aloud by the onboard speech synthesizer? Uh, or did it go one line past it? Uh, do you have the ability to move not only read or not read, but move page to page, chapter to chapter, all those kinds of what they call markup uh, abilities. A lot of these applications that allow you to access this digital content have some compromising component to it. The last one is you can find yourself in these systems um, needing to have a specific device. So, I suggest to people, before you buy a device, say a Nook or a Kindle, uh, any of these devices, see if your library loans them out and give it a try. But I will tell you, you will have to go to the blindness community to learn how to utilize what that device is. There are very, very few libraries that are going to know how to turn on the speech component. Uh, of these devices. Uh, if you go and they do lot offer it, then 
pay back your library by offering, once you've learned how to use it, to hold a class for the local blindness community on how they can use that product and that service. Thank you, Steve, for the question. It, it's an important advocacy question that Lua especially is watching very closely. That was a wonderful question and a fantastic answer. When I borrow a book, I'm looking for example, my Sunday school class has got to read a book. And I go to NLS first, then I go to Bookshare, then I go to Audible, then I go to Kindle. And those are kind of my four tracks. But the original question you asked us was, have we ever borrowed anything from a library that was kind of unusual? And the library here in Harrison offers fishing poles. There you go. Okay. Hey, recreation. Yeah. Yeah. You can go in and, re- and I, I think they require a, da- a, da- bleh, a deposit of some kind. Um, and then you can go down to the little lake and fish for a while and take it back. So this has been a really informative um, call. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. We have Ralph Smitherman with a question and Michael is going to run him the mic. All right, Brian, uh, that was a great presentation. Um, this is a little offbeat, but, uh, when you check out a musical instrument or camping equipment or a fishing pole, is there usually a deadline? I mean, is it different than when you check out a book? It it varies pretty dramatically. Um, the more unique the item you're borrowing, the more unique the timing. So if you were to check out camping gear, um, it's usually for one week. Uh, if you were going to be checking out apparently that fishing pole, if they've got a lake in the backyard or in the back of the library, then maybe they're talking about a couple of hours. But when it's talking about something like a musical instrument, it tends to be longer than that because they're anticipating that you are trying to learn to use it. And that's certainly not something one uh, gets really started with in one weekend. Okay, so back to Zoom. Uh, Carrie Smith. That's a great presentation that you did. Um, I um, I haven't borrowed something from the library that was unusual, but I wanted to tell you that our library here in the St. Louis area, I don't know if a lot of the libraries do, but where I live, they will bring uh, anything that you ask them for to your home, your senior or disabled, and they will let you keep the things as long as you need to have them. But I was going to tell you, when I was trying, I had a Braille business, and my Braille wire didn't, Braille embosser didn't work. I went down to our library in St. Louis, and they had one, and I used it. And then they also used to have these descriptive movies there where they provide refreshments and stuff. So that was pretty cool, too. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, some of the uh, libraries attempt to buy expensive one-off devices like Braille embossers and, like I said, the old days of the Kurzweil scanners when they were quite expensive. Um, it's an attempt to try to, well, engage all of the community. You know, we talk about diversity in ACB sometimes and speak mostly of uh, either race or sexual orientation. But in our general communities, we're an underserved population. So they get special funding. As I mentioned at the very beginning, funding drives a great deal. They get special funding that they must spend in particular ways. 
But one of the areas they struggle the most in doing is getting us to come through the front door and to get us to come back again. So when I hear about a lecture series, uh, I go to my library uh, to participate in that. It's kind of like I feel for, for voting. I'm right now voting remotely because of COVID. But I take pride in being seen at my polling place. So I also take pride in being seen at my library and at my town hall. So you got to, if you're going to get, you got to gotta be seen at the door. All right, next. Um, I am so grateful to my our mic runner, Michael, that I'm going to let him ask another question. Well, thank you very much. Alan, uh, I mean, uh, Adam uh, Reshevel's comment made me think of this, uh, and there's a point to it for some people in talking with your affiliate members. Um, I worked for the last uh, five years of my working life before I at least semi-retired as an itinerant O&M certified person that worked with the school systems. And I went to a lot of little tiny towns in Kansas. And I had a uh, student at a school in Centralia, Kansas, which is a town of about 300 souls. Uh, Its downtown area had a motorcycle repair shop and the restaurant closed while I was working with this this kiddo, and a courthouse, and the county library for this little rural county in Kansas. And I had a student who was very, very uh, withdrawn and didn't really think he could do much. The school had tried to make accommodations, but uh, he was not, to say the least, an assertive person at all. And in looking for places to have him learn routes and uh, practice cane travel and things like that. And he did have a little bit of vision. We started going to the Centralia Library, and that was one of the routes he had to learn. And guess what? Because that county has a number of, quite a number of people who are older in it who get things like macular degeneration, they had, for the size of the library, a huge large print correct collection, many of the books of which he could actually use. And some of them were adult reading that the school wasn't allowing him to have access to. And he was delighted. And the discovery of that large print collection in that little tiny library truly began to bring this young man out of his shell considerably. And I think the message in that to be remembered far and wide is don't assume that you've got to go to a library in a fairly large population area to find some of these accommodations exist. Because Thank you, Michael. Community. I will tell you that in my research, I found the more unique collections were in smaller libraries, mm-hmm. not in you know the New York City public or something like that. They may have such a thing. But it is not a size-oriented thing. It's a community-based kind of thing. If uh, the local quilting club wanted a place to meet, you might find them holding classes at the library. And as a result of that, they may have equipment for first-time quilters available to borrow. Uh, Frequently, these specialty collections 
are part of somebody's personal interest. You can go to a library and find incredible uh, displays of uh, birds, for example. If you're a birder uh, and, you know, a number of blind people out there are enjoying bird song identification, that kind of stuff. But you may not have ever seen what that bird looks like. You can find these touchable libraries uh, in some of the most obscure places. You don't ask, you don't get. Back on Zoom. Next is Lisa Brooks. Hi. Um, really quickly, I just wanted to mention that um, sometimes libraries will have job fairs for those who might be looking for employment. Sometimes it's a good resource um, to possibly meet potential employers. And also, I subscribe to the Phoenix uh, Regional Library Newsletter. Um, and it comes once a month in my email. And it's a great way to learn about what guest speakers and classes that are new or what books um, are in a summer reading program or special collections that are added. And I just want to encourage people that that's another resource where you can learn more about your own local library. Thanks. Thank you. And that's absolutely true. I read two or three different library newsletters uh, for that very reason. How, How else am I supposed to learn these things if I don't read? It's not like it's going to be on the evening news for the most part. Anybody else in Omaha? In Omaha, I am just going to take a moment to remind those of uh, the, you who are on the call who are not Library Users of America members, we would love to have you join us. And uh, uh, if you, we, we have a library talk uh, list, which you don't have to be a member, but you could be on it and get some announcements from us. Brian, I guess, I, I guess that I wanted to ask you how you feel about blind people becoming involved in library advisory committees, friends of public library programs, and that kind of thing. Because I know that we found in Miami that we got the library, and and then Broward as well, that we got the library to do an awful lot more for us. The, the bottom line is that, that they're they're that we, we seem to get more because we were actively involved at the center ra- rather than simply staying out at the periphery. And, and I'd like your comments. Absolutely true. One of the things that you want to do if you're going to go this route, and I just encourage everybody to give it a go, is um, introduce yourself, ask for an opportunity to meet with the head librarian, just to chat about uh, what the library what you as a patron can do for the library and vice versa. Old John Kennedy phrase, right? Don't ask. Um, don't ask if you're not going to give, give back to some degree, right? And part of that is participation in focus groups. You are hearing this over and over from entities there at the ACB convention. We want to hear what you have to say. You might think that they're just going to ignore you, but I am here to tell you, it is the driver of virtually every change you've ever experienced. Somebody said something to somebody, and that somebody took the time to listen. So if we get involved in our communities, like our local library, then we can easily impact things. The other thing I'd like to suggest, however 
is if you think this is a high, I'd like you to, to do a library collection of famous buildings in 3D and that you're the only one who ever asks and you get the one thing and you never participate in other library activities, uh, it, it will not be good for your cause in general terms. You really have to develop that relationship by being there. And I also suggest that it's not just to be there because you're a blind person wanting something of particular value to blind people. You have to be viewed as a community member at large. So you should be as much advocating for children's programming as you are for blind access in one form or another. Any other questions? I see that was my response to Paul. So we're back to the Zoom room. Hi, this is Carol Francisco from Nashville, and we had an interesting experience this year. Our NLS library moved to a new, brand new building, had just been constructed, and we were fortunate enough to get a guided, described tour of this building, which also contains the Tennessee History Museum and Tennessee Archives. And what that meant was that on the library side, we were able to learn about their new robotic delivery system of getting books out of the stacks with this robotic thing and uh, send them to where they were needed. We were able to get a description of this brand new building. We were able to, of course, meet our librarians, and we were able to talk with uh I guess I would call them archaeologists or restorers who were restoring ancient documents that were very fragile. And we also checked out their um, recording studio. So we just had uh, a marvelous experience. And so, and, and they have also had tech vendors over there uh, and they do a, a quarterly book club. So um, we're very happy with them. And um, I would really recommend for anybody that lives near your Tennessee, I mean, your state museum and your state archives, it will contain a library. And it is, for those of us who love history, it's fascinating historical information. Thank you so much for that. Uh, again, I've seen libraries that um, here, in, here in the Boston area, there are tours that leave the library and go to famous historical places, uh, and they link that to what's in the library collection. But you can, for example, start at the Boston Public Library and find yourself on the Freedom Trail going to Paul Revere's house. So there are some really fascinating things public libraries do to engage the community, and you can have an impact on making those activities accessible. Any other questions in Omaha? Well, I, let me just give the number. I found a number for people who do want to join Lua. Our, our, um, she's leaving the board, but she's still our membership uh, guru, sure, yeah. is, is Carla Rocheval, and uh, she gives her number everywhere, so I don't feel badly giving it to everybody who might want to join. It's 502-897-1472, which was a good year. That's 502-897-1472. And she can give you any information you need about joining us. So with that, Brian, um, back to the Zoom. 
Okay, it's uh, Vanessa from Maryland again. Two quick comments. Um, as far as I know, all of our local libraries in Baltimore County have at least one computer that has JAWS on it. Um, I have JAWS at home, so I don't need to take advantage of that, but it is there. Secondly, our Library for the Blind and the Enoch Pratt Library physically back up to each other. And so over the last five or six years, they decided to start doing some programs cooperatively with each other since they, I mean, they literally back up to each other. Um, so those are a couple of the things that are going on in the Baltimore metro area. Yeah, our sub-regional here in Massachusetts is co-located in the Worcester Public Library, which is, uh, Worcester is the second largest city in Massachusetts. So it's a fairly significant library, and it's not tucked back in the corner. It's, it's really an integral part of that public library. It's an interesting model uh, to engage uh, the blindness community with the uh, sighted community in general. Next question. Don Horn. Hi, two things. Uh, in line with what uh, Judy was saying, the um, some of the libraries do offer, not only do they offer, or Lisa was mentioning, not only do they offer um, assistance, but they, uh, they a lot of them have full-fledged career centers in addition to offering job fairs. So you can do, I, I have my clients doing a lot of uh, vocational research and the career librarian is more knowledgeable about locating that often than even the reference librarian. The other thing is that our local library offers field trips and I don't, do it anymore because I need more assistance than they can give. But I've gone into New York City to see Broadway shows and I've gone to some museums and they've been wonderfully willing. When I used to go, they were wonderfully willing about accommodating the needs I then had. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Does this sound like your mother's library? This is so much more than I remember that uh, little library at the corner. Next question. Uh, Sue Ellen. Hey, Brian. Hey, Sue Ellen. How are you doing? Great. Well, this year I did Shakespeare in the Park with a theater group I belong to, Imagine Blind Players, and we needed a place to rehearse uh, for six weeks. Well, somebody from uh, the person from Community Creates, which is part of Kentucky Shakespeare, talked to someone at the library, and they gave us conference room. And for six weeks, that was our rehearsal venue. There you go. See, that's community. And that's what I think people really need to remember about libraries in general. They are not just a bunch of bookshelves, for heaven's sake. They're a community center. Uh, and they are seeking ways to remain relevant as more and more people read their books electronically. So they're going to get really creative in what they do and what they're willing to do. Next. Larry. Yes, hi. And uh, I joined a little bit late, so um, maybe you've already touched on these, but one of my concerns is the growing uh, number of, they call them, um, uh, a cyber libraries or uh, where the, all the books are online and you access them using tablets. Uh, we have one for our county here, and uh, they've tried to be accommodating by loaning tablets and 
teaching blind people how to use them and helping us, you know, download books, but they're all electronic. And I'm wondering if this is a sign of the future. Are libraries going to be moving in this direction? That's question number one. And and, I, and then I have one quick follow-up question. So the answer is yes, things are going in that direction. However, it doesn't mean that you will never have a hard copy book in your hand. But as NLS is exploring this whole idea of uh, Braille on demand, where you say, I'd love to have this book in hard copy in my lap, um, and then they produce that, rather than warehousing where that same title is sitting in a library five states away, and somebody's having to pay for warehousing space for it to sit there in case somebody might want it. There's going to be not only Braille on demand, but print on demand. I really mean the the regular libraries. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly. You will walk into your public library Uh in the near future and say, I'd like to have a hard copy of thus and such. And the library will have arranged with the publisher to be able to print that book on demand. Really? And then loan it to you. Wow. They don't want to own it and put it on the shelf in case you might want to read it someday. They will only want to print it when they have somebody request it. Uh, this is this is the modern age. So, yes, there will be prob- predominantly, I expect, will be electronic and, and viewers. There's real advantages to that as our society gets older, because rather than having to establish that large print is 18-point type, you can say large print is as large as you need it or as small as you need it. Mm. Uh, You can do that with tablets. You simply can't do that with hard copy. A library is going to have that size that they've determined is average. Now, how many people on this call are average? Nobody. So... Having that electronics will give us the ability to uh, make things available in a variety of formats personalized to the individual. So, yes, electronic. Yes, it's a bit of a struggle right now. Um, The one other thing I'd like to say to my advocate friends out there is you need to get involved in your community to make sure that when they buy things, they are considering accessibility as one of the must-haves when they do that buy. There are certainly systems out there, library systems, that are more accessible than others. But my guess is your library didn't have in its procurement contract a requirement that it was demonstrably accessible. You need to be asking that question as a citizen of your community. Is the system the town is using for library, for police, for fire, for town hall functions, etc., is it accessible before it's bought? Because you know what they say, you know, once it's in concrete, it's in concrete. My second real quick question, because I know we're running out of time, about uh, advisory, uh, uh, consumer advisory committees for the collection selection. Several years ago, I was 
pleased and honored to be a member of that. Is that still operational and in people meeting in person? And how do you apply or qualify? Are we talking about for the National Library Service? Yes. Yes, it still exists. Cheryl Cummings is the current ACB rep to that committee. Uh, I don't know how long a term is in doing that. Uh, and they did not meet in person. They've been meeting virtually. Jamaica? Yes, um, this is Jamaica. And I have a really quick question about JAWS and the formats. What formats would be good with JAWS to read the books for, um, for um, um, Overdrive? I will tell you that in many of these systems, they offer multiple formats, uh, trying to be trying to make themselves so that they're not inaccessible, not so much inaccessible, that they're not compatible with certain devices. I don't know in OverDrive which formats they currently support, but I will tell you that um, it's not a matter of just the format. It's also a matter of the OverDrive reading software. That is the thing you use to navigate through it that remains somewhat problematical. It really requires somebody to who knows how to do it to show you how to do it. At least that's been my experience, and I was an access technology trainer for 34 years. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to give an example of accessibility and community. Great, great presentation, by the way. We have a very fancy library uh, that was all uh, done by donations and philanthropy and everything. It has a charter high school and, a, and just a number of things. Um, one of the things that I went to recently was um, uh, a writer's conference. And in San Diego, you know, we got a lot of, um, you know, fairly uh, well-known authors and some script writers. And once I got get in through the door, um, there are a lot of blind people coming to these events, just like has been mentioned. But um, this was, of course, just listening to a lecture, so it was very accessible. But most of the staff, I have pretty good mobility skills, but the library is kind of a little bit of a, a maze. So the security staff has always been accommodating. Once I get through the door, they will take me to wherever I need to go. And um, the ICANN Center has often walked me back to my paratransit stop. So um, that's, I just wanted to share that experience with you. Thank you so much. Um, Brian, uh, we can't thank you enough. The, the, the presentations that you take on for Lua are always just stellar. Uh, and we just get raves. And, and once again, I know we are going to just hear raves about this session and people will be demanding the podcast. So thank you so very much. Thank, thank you, you Janet. Jeanette, I want to thank Jeanette specifically because she, how could we do these things, Judy, if we didn't have these folks here Amen. Uh, behind the scenes making this stuff happen? I really, really do appreciate it. This has gone incredibly smoothly. And look at all the participation we had. Yes. That's Thank what Lou is all about. It's not, you know, talking heads. It's it's this level of participation.